In on the right side. Cal launches one to left field. Down the line. That one is gone. A home run. Cal Ripken with a three-run shot down the line on the first pitch. And Baltimore has scored five times. Number 390 in the illustrious career of number eight, Cal Ripken. Cal lines it into right field. Will Park waiting to see if it's caught. And he'll be stopped at third base as Jordan throws in. That one has hit a long way. And Ripken has done it again. His second home run of the night. Number 391, Lifetime. It is now 11 to nothing, Orioles. And Ripken is 3 for 3 with two big flies. And he is giving it an ovation from the enemy crowd. And many stand. Wow. Off the glove of McGlinchey, but that is going to go for another base hit for Ripken. 1989. No, 85. Oh, 85. Yeah. Cal rips one. Deep left center field. Jones going back. That one is up against the wall. Amaral scores, and Conine stops at third, and Ripken's got his fourth five-hit game. And here at Turner Field in Atlanta, they are standing on their feet and saluting the Iron Man, Cal Ripken. Having a night to remember. That is hit number six for Cal Ripken. And those who are left in this crowd of better than 45,000 offer yet another ovation for the Orioles star in Atlanta. Well, they came to see Cal and they saw a lot more perhaps than they ever would have imagined. The first time in his career that Cal Ripken has had six hits in a game. the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. It's the international player rocking the Himalayas. Konnichiwa. Hola. Bonsoir. And good night, mate. To all my American, UK, and Canadian seamheads, what is up? It's your boy coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And I'm all jacked up. Uh, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I, I like to call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players. 
and their stories. Holler if you hear me. Half man, half podcast machine. And like I said, I'm jacked up, ready to go, splitting backs like a Dutch master killer. So let's run out of the field, take some grounders while the pitcher warms up. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can always check out my vaults of archives at diamondsnakejig.podbean.com. Also, feel free to check out your uh, YouTube, Facebook, private group pages, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I not only have an account of uh, these audio files on the YouTube page, but I also have uh, one-on-one conversations that I did with guys like Negro Leagues Museum Curator and President Bob Kendrick, Spaceman Bill Lee, Kenny Singleton, and I even did the last living one-on-one interview with former Astros ace J.R. Richard. So there's that, and there's so much more, and that's at the YouTube the YouTube page, uh, Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, and also got a Facebook private group page in the same name. And that Facebook page is, quite honestly, it's just chock full of some of the brightest baseball minds I've ever encountered. So, like I said, both the YouTube and uh, Facebook pages, they kind of fly under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. And by all means, uh, go out and check those out. So, to my growing CMED army, welcome back. And to any of you newbies who may be just now finding this program for the first time, I'd like to welcome you in as well. Make yourself comfortable. Join us here at Backwards K-Pod as we celebrate baseball every Tuesday through their long history of stories. I will never charge my audience for the content here. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. It's just not practical in today's economy when we're all spending like $5 a gallon on fucking gas. So... I'll never charge you. All I ask is that you subscribe, download, and follow. If you're an Apple or Spotify user to listen to this, please uh, help keep this content free by rating and reviewing me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. I've covered over 150 years of baseball and almost six months of shows from the Boston Braves of 1871 uh, all the way up to the current AL MVP, Shohei Otani. So, with that being said... I'm ready to dig into this week's topic. Former Orioles shortstop, the Iron Man, Cal Ripken Jr. And honestly, it really couldn't come at a more appropriate time for me personally as I'm really struggling with my health issues. Um, It is impacting my speech and all. So I hope you bear with me. And I kind of feel like I'm in this, you know, Tupac mode where literally, guys, I'm putting as many shows in the can as I can um, to to have them down the road once I go under the knife here. As I feel an obligation to the fans to keep this train rolling with shows, even if I'm on the sidelines. Um, I refuse to miss shows. I've given a promise and I intend on keeping it. And folks, a lot of that comes from watching Calvert Jr. extensively from 1982 to 2001. And for anyone who has never been there, Baltimore is your prototypical blue-collar city. Everything about the team's, uh, the town screams blue-collar. From construction to steelworkers to teachers, police, firefighters, longshoremen at some of the country's oldest and largest water port uh, ports. In its proper context, 
Baltimore is more like Pittsburgh and filthy than it is D.C. and New York. It doesn't have powerful politicians or glitzy entertainers. It has a community of grinders and workers who get up, pack a lunch, and get after it every day. And from 1982 to 2001... I'm going to be honest with you. I probably went to almost a thousand baseball games at Memorial Stadium and Oriole Park at Camden Yards. My count, you know, going through the years, it's it's around 800. From 1982 to 1999, out of those damn near 800 games I attended, Cal played in every single one of them. Now think about that for a second. Every single one of those games... From 1982 to 1999, every Oriole game that I saw at Memorial Stadium and Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Calvert can play it. Now, out on Light Street in downtown Baltimore, on the side of a building, there was once this 10-floor mural of Calvert Jr. And he's watching the flight of the ball and he's preparing to drop his bat and run with the indelible words, death Taxes, Calvert can Jr. Signifying that those are the only things, things that you can count on in life when you live in Baltimore. And the beautiful mural, it stood for about seven years. And it truly encapsulated Cal's connection to his hometown city and team. And I often think to myself how lucky I was to not only live in Baltimore, but to live in this era And the chance to see this generational type player do something that I am a thousand percent sure will not be done again in my lifetime. I also, I also realize how lucky I am to have a platform like this to share this story with you. So, Calvin Edward Ripken Jr. Born August 24th, 1960, in Harvard of Grace, Maryland. And he was raised in nearby Aberdeen, which is currently the home of the High A Orioles minor league affiliate that he now owns called the Aberdeen Ironbirds. He was the second oldest child of four and the oldest of three boys to Violet and Calvert and Sr. Sr. himself was a professional baseball player when Jr. was born. And Senior wasn't like Earl Weaver. Senior could actually play baseball. He was a highly talented star catcher out of Aberdeen High, who, working his way through the Orioles' farm system, eventually would marry his sweetheart, high school sweetheart, and have these kids. And honestly, Senior was surely destined to be a major league player. He was a defensive wizard, donning the tools of ignorance, and a hitter, with a 253, 354, 366 slash, and seven minor league seasons, while playing on five different levels on the Baltimore farm. In 1961, Senior was on the cusp of realizing his major league goals. And at this time, he's playing for AAA level Rochester Red Wings. Unfortunately, early in that 1961 spring training camp, he was invited to spring training camp that year with the Orioles. 
Cena took two consecutive foul balls to his shoulder during a game. And one of the things that Cal and his father, Senior, shared was this amazing toughness and a tenacious stubbornness. Senior would finish the game. He even threw a couple would-be base stealers out in the base pass, but the next day when he woke up, he was in severe pain, and he could barely pick up a baseball. And eventually, that arm would come around in a limited capacity, but his playing career was in serious decline, as it would take nearly six years to recover from those injuries. In June of 1961, Orioles GM Harry Dalton offered Senior an opportunity to be a player manager for the Leesburg Class D Florida League team. And realizing that his playing career, it wasn't going to pan out. Senior took the job, and he would spend the next 31 years in the organization teaching ballplayers like Jim Palmer, Eddie Murray, and eventually his sons, Billy and Junior, how to play baseball. How to play baseball the Oriole way. And I feel like it's important to me that I lay the foundation of the Calverton Jr. story with a background check on his father. Cal's brother, Billy, has said many times that Junior would have made the pros without having his father's influence, but he wouldn't have been the Hall of Fame Iron Man that we all know today without Senior's mentorship. And Cal acknowledges that his father wasn't a man of many words. His father was a man of action. So you didn't get like a senior with pom-poms in your ear with positive reinforcement. It was more like, son, watch how I do it. And you should probably do it the same way. And don't make me tell you twice. In broader terms, Calverton Sr. was the architect of the Oriole way. Even more so than Hall of Fame manager Earl Weaver. Because while Weaver was leading the big club to the World Series appearances, it was Cal Sr. laying the groundwork for the solid prospects he was promoting to Earl from the farm. And all of them learned Sr.'s way. The Oriole way. From 1966 to 1983, the Orioles were the winningest team in baseball. With 18 consecutive winning seasons, the majority of those being first and second place finishes in the AL East. Six World Series appearances, three world titles, and butterfly effect moment. We haven't done one of these in a while. You know where the slightest thing could change history. You look at baseball today, you, you got all these wild cards in, and everybody makes these significant playoff runs. A butterfly effect moment. Had there been a wild card like today, the the Orioles would have had a real shot at even more titles than they came away with. Uh, Don't believe me? Do your research. Pick a year between 1966 and 1983 and go back and look at the ALE standings for any of those seasons. The O's either won the East or were just mere games behind the leader and were wild card eligible. So, butterfly effect moment. The, Royal, the Orioles run at this time actually mirrors the Braves team of the 90s, but with more world titles to show for the Orioles. Had there been a world uh, wild card, 
I can only imagine the infinite possibilities of how history may have been rewritten. But I digress. So, with Senior literally driving the team, that's right, the man of action actually drove the team bus from town to town. And while he's traversing the Carolinas and the Appalachian Mountains playing baseball, his wife, Y, is at home taking care of the Ripken Pack. As a boy, Junior was always with his father at the ballpark. In fact, when Cal was around 13, 14 years old, he was playing catch with former Orioles and Angels third baseman Doug DeSensei in Asheville, North Carolina. And some nut job runs out on the field during pregame workouts and begins shooting up the field with a rifle. Uh, you know, behavior that has almost become the norm here in 2022, but certainly not the norm in 1974. And a startled youngster froze in his tracks. And Cal will never forget being grabbed by the sensei under a hail of fire and being carried into the dugout and back into the clubhouse. Because of this, Cal has been really close to Doug all his life, and he considers him one of his most influential baseball mentors outside of his father. In 1975, when his father was promoted to the big club in a scouting and consulting capacity, Memorial Stadium now became Junior's new playground. And it was there that the always analytical mind of Ripken begins to surface. And he begins asking the boys about strategies and situational plays. And he's absorbing it all in like a sponge. In his life away from Memorial Stadium, uh, Ripken is an honorable student at his father's high school alma mater, Aberdeen High. And he is a dominant athlete, excelling in soccer and, of course, baseball. Because of his excellence in academics as well as sports, Ripken really could have written his own ticket to any college he wanted had he desired, and many colleges were interested in scouting him, including West Point, who really wanted Cal to play soccer for Army. And I mean, you know, that's a real butterfly effect moment right there, Cal playing soccer for Army. There's no doubt in my mind he would have retired a four-star general in my humble opinion. I mean, we're talking about a guy so disciplined and analytical, that no doubt in my mind, he's at least carrying three stars on his collar if he goes that route. Again, I digress. Cal made it very clear to the Army and you know, pretty much all the other scouts, I'm going to pursue being a pro baseball player. In high school, Cal was a pitcher and a shortstop. In his senior year, Ripken led Aberdeen High to the Maryland State Championship with a 496 batting average and a 7-2 record with a .79 ERA on the bump. In the Class A final against Arundel, Cal hurled a two-hitter and struck out 17 Wildcats. Orioles scouting director Tom Giordano, he thought Ripken had the potential to be a front-of-the-rotation starter, while scout Dick Bowie believed Cal had the ability and talent to be an everyday position player. Cal Sr., he made it known that he preferred that his son try being a position player, and should he fail at that, he could give pitching a shot. So, the Orioles officially selected Cal Ripken Jr. in the second round of the 1978 MLB Amateur Draft, number 48 overall. 
He was the fourth Oriole taken that year. And he was taken in a spot that was originally owned by the Boston Red Sox, but they relinquished the pick by selecting Dick Drago in the re-entry draft. So, in the summer of 78, Cal assigned to a major league deal, I'm sorry, a minor league deal, and he re- uh, received a signing bonus of 20 large. He was sent to rookie league Bluefield Orioles of the Appalachian League. The manager of the team, Junior Minor, was in need of infielders, so in spite of Cal's pitching credentials, he was started at shortstop. And initially, he was penciled in as a highly regarded prospect, Bob Bonner's backup. Oh boy, Bob Bonner, my God. A short time later, Bonner <laughs> would be sent to double-A ball and Rickon was the team's everyday shortstop. I'm giggling to myself because, I mean, if there was an ever a uh, uh, prospect bust in the Orioles system, it was Bob Bonner. Cal started slow that rookie year. He made some throwing errors. And actually, he didn't even drop Dong once that first season. Even though he had some uh, growing pain moments in rookie ball, he did finish with a respectable... 264 batting average. After a few more years of promotions throughout the farm, as well as a couple winter stints in Puerto Rico, playing against major league competition, it was becoming clear that Junior is close to attaining his dream. He goes into spring training 1981 on the cusp of his dream, and the Orioles farm him out one more time to uh, Rochester to play for the Red Wings, Baltimore's AAA affiliate at the time. And Cal goes down, and he absolutely demolishes that league in 81. He bats 288, he smashes 23 home runs, with 75 ribs and 114 games. And it was actually playing for that Rochester team that Cal would give a sneak peek into the career, career he was about to embark on. Let me tell you what happened. On April 18th, 1981, the Rochester Red Wings and Paul Tuckett Red Sox played the longest game in professional baseball history. A 33-inning affair. And Cal Rickon played the entire game at third base. It started out, it was a windy cold day in New England when the game began. The two teams fought to a 2-2 tie in the bottom of 32nd inning. When the umpires called the game, when they kind of, you know, it's 4 o'clock in the fucking morning. I mean, even the crackheads are getting tired at this hour. So they postponed the game in the 32nd inning. I'm sorry. Yeah, 32nd inning. So, on June 23rd, the game was resumed. And the Paul Sox would win it in the 33rd inning. The game itself, it played out over a three-day period, and the time on that was eight hours and 25 minutes from first pitch to finish. Two eventual Hall of Famers played in that game, Wade Boggs, who went 4-for-12 in the game, including a game-tied double in the 21st inning, and Ripken, who was the only player to play the whole game, he went 2-for-13. In 1981... 
the MLB season was in the midst of playing a split schedule due to the mid-season work stoppage that year. And we've talked about that on a couple of shows. We talked about that in the Nolan Ryan show, the death of the Montreal Expos. You can always find those in the archives at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. So they got this kind of split schedule up, and and Cal was brought up. But he didn't see much time uh, with the Orioles vying for a second-half playoff spot. Earl Weaver went with his veteran core down the stretch in 81. So he became a virtual understudy for DeSensei and the Blade, Mark Belanger. Junior made his ML debut as a pitch runner, in fact, on August 10th, 1981. And that kind of cracks me up that Cal Ripken would ever be a, a you know a, a pitch runner for somebody. That, that, that's funny. Uh, he would wind up scoring his first run that day on a base knock by my man Kenny Singleton. A few days later, he would be a defensive replacement for shortstop Len Sakana. The following year, Cal was pretty much given the keys to the car at third base when the Orioles traded Cal's friend and mentor. Doug DeSensei to the Halos. On April day, on opening day, 1982, the son of the fan favorite Orioles third base coach made his de- debut. And man, did he ever. He started the rookie season with a bang, going three for four, including an absolute bomb for his first MLB home run. But baseball, you know, the brutal, unforgiving bitch she can be sometimes. Uh, she humbled Cal as he went into his first slump of his career, literally in his second game. At one point, he goes one for 21, and Earl keeps telling him, I believe in you, kid. But Cal thinking to himself, you know, how long is that going to last? I mean, Earl's a scary little dude, and, 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 and he expects results. By this time, Cal is emotionally and mentally drained and overcome with his poor performance. Enter stage left, Reggie Jackson. It was Reggie who played for the Orioles in 1976, and he had played catch many times with Junior in the outfield at Memorial Stadium when he was just a boy, following his dad's every move. And Mr. October, who was now in the Angels at this time, he seeks out Junior by the batting cage. He walks up to him, they exchange heartfelt greetings, and Reggie says, Hey, Cal, stop putting so much pressure on yourself. I, I see you in the box, and you're pressing, trying to hit six homers with six run homers with one guy on base. Everyone knows you can play, bro. The Orioles organization, all of us who watched you grow up, we all know you can play baseball. Just go out and play and have fun and do what comes natural. And Cal always considers this, that, that moment, that moment, his rookie season turned around. By the middle of May, Ripken found a stroke. He's hitting safely in 13 or 14 games. By early June, the average is up to 250. And on May 30th, 1982, Junior was in the starting lineup. At that time, the date had no significant meaning as they were taking on the Twins and Jim Cott. But... Almost a decade and a half later, it would mean something. 
After that start, he played every game of the 1982 season. On July 1st, Earl Weaver makes a most curious decision that will have an impact on the game for years and generations to come. The bird skipper told his young third baseman that he and his father had decided they wanted him to play shortstop full-time. So he told the young curly-haired mop kid to uh, just concentrate on catching that routine and uh, ground ball and, and accurately throwing it to fucking third, first base. Earl's words. Hey, promise, Cal, if you just concentrate on that, everything else is going to work out. And because of Ripken's size, six foot four, 230 pounds, the decision was met with skepticism, uh, skepticism and question marks. No man this big had ever played the shortstop position. We were told the Baltimore media that I can always find a power-hitting third baseman, but power-hitting shortstops, they don't grow on trees. And sidebar, he ain't lying. I mean, nowadays, there are many shortstops that built that bill, but when Cal moved there, when Cal played shortstop, the position was being manned by little guys like Scooter, Bucky, Patek, and Pee Wee. And honestly, Cal always looked out of place in the infield in the beginning until the ball was hit near him. And then, holy shit, did he look like a shortstop. And he totally changed that position forever. For years, he was the biggest guy to ever play shortstop. I don't know if he's the biggest guy ever to play that position now. But at that time, he was the biggest shortstop to ever play the position. And when asked about the move, Weaver, before his death, said, I was an organization man, been with Baltimore my whole career, followed all their orders to a T. Many were not happy with this decision to move kind of short, but I told the front office for the first time, fire my ass if you want, but as long as I'm here, that kid will be at short every day. The, the Orioles narrowly missed the playoffs that year, losing out on the last day of the season. Lockhart. <coughs> Cal finished with 28 dogs, 93 ribs, winning the 1982 AL Rookie of the Year. Weaver has told Cal, uh, you know, if I had started to a shortstop earlier that year, we would have won the AL pennant. Or you could have just had a wild card format like now. Again, I digress. During this period, Cal and future Hall of Famer Oriole Slugger uh, Eddie Murray became close friends, a bond that still remains strong to this day. And Murray had close ties to uh, the Ripken family, going back to Eddie's minor league days when it was Cal Ripken Sr. that convinced the Orioles to let him try switch hitting. You're welcome, baseball. Under the influence of his best friend and mentor, the Orioles would eventually losing the year before, 1982, on the last day of the season. With Cal batting third and Eddie cleanup, the Orioles won the AL East by six games. Junior led the league with 211 hits. He batted 318 with 27 home runs and 102 RBI, earning him AL MVP honors the year after he won Rookie of the Year. And it was just a few points ahead of second-place finisher Eddie Murray. And there is a debate in Baltimore to this day, should Eddie have really won that MVP that year. Either way, they were both off the freaking chain. 
The Orioles were going to knock off uh, Tony La Russa, the Chicago White Sox in the playoffs, and then they built, beat Filthy in the 1983 World Series, four games of two, with Calvert ensnaring a weak line drive off the bat of Gary Maddox for the series clinching out. Over the next few, few years, uh, Rickon was establishing himself as the Orioles' everyday shortstop. He was just bigger than anyone who ever played his position, but nevertheless, his agility and quick reflexes made many baseball GM types and experts, scouts, reconsider what a shortstop now looks like in the major leagues. Comparatively speaking, his bat was unlike only a handful of players that ever played the position before him. Guys like Ernie Banks were amazing for sure, but Cal's combination of power and patience and put his bat in a whole shortstop class of its own at the time. In the field, Cal was a game changer as well. His brain was always working like a computer. He began to understand the pitcher's plan, and the batter's abilities. And with this base of information, he was always <laughs> like right where the ball was hit. It was unbelievably uncanny uh, ability that you probably didn't even notice unless you watched him play every day. I kind of liken it to Larry Bird, who, like Cal, wasn't the fastest or most athletic guy on their playing surfaces, but like Cal, Bird always knew where he had to be, where he had to go on the floor to get his shot. And he knew how to get to that spot. Now, Cal, a hungry student of the game, was able to feed his meticulous baseball brain with the pitcher's plans and hitter's tendencies by always attending the pitcher-catcher strategy meetings before every new series. He rarely ever saw Cal out of place or cheating in the wrong direction on defense. Honestly, he was almost boring because he was always right there. And with one of the strongest, most accurate arms ever at his position, it was basically grounded drills for Cal. Finally, in 1987, his father is given the big job. A shot at managing his hometown Baltimore Orioles. And with Junior recognized as an elite shortstop in the AL... His brother Billy now joins the team to play second base, uh, forming one of the most sure-handed keystone duos next to Ripken and Alomar in club history. Together, they combined for a 986 fielding percentage, which is third highest for a shortstop second baseman duo since 1960. Later in the season, September 14, 1987, in a game they're losing badly, Orioles manager Calvin Sr. sits his shortstop sundown after 8,264 consecutive innings. Junior had not missed an inning of play going back to June 5th, 1982. Again, folks, it's now September of 1987. More than six seasons of not only playing every day, but not missing an inning. You pick it up when I'm laying down, that's incredible. Cal, who at this point was in the midst of a 1-for-12 in his last 13 at-bat slump, was told by his father, the manager, that now's a good time to take a rest, son. Have a seat on the bench. 
I'm going to send Greg Worthington out to play short. And with that, 8,264 consecutive inning played streak was over. When asked about it later, Cal said, I'm a player. I do what the manager tells me with no need for explanation. It just so happens that my father is the manager. The 1987 season was a tough pill to swallow. The Orioles limped into sixth place, and although Cal clobbered 27 home runs with 98 RBIs, his average tipped to 250. But at least his father was the manager. He also married his first wife that year, the former Kelly Greer, on November 13th in Towson, Maryland. The couple had their first child, Rachel, in 1989, and their son, Ryan, in 1993, who... Ironically, was born on an off day, so thankfully it didn't affect the streak. However, comma, the joy of his father coaching him would come to an unexpected halt. When six games into the 1988 winless season, owner Edward Bennett Williams fired senior. And Cal and Billy were both taken aback by this quick trigger on a manager of a rebuilding team and someone who had spent the majority of his life dedicated to the Orioles' way. And it was becoming more apparent that the Orioles' way was officially over. The Ripken brothers, they, uh, they shook off that stinging rejection of their father and they did what Senior wanted them to do, and that was to play ball. During this time, with the exception of 1989, when the Orioles were actually competitive, the why not season, the Orioles fielded a lot of bad teams. And Cal, the ultimate competitor, still miffed about the treatment of his father, was not pleased with what he saw in his beloved Orioles organization. And he began taking matters in his own hand. He began calling pitches from his position, saying many times, somebody on this goddamn team needs to be accountable. And it might as well be me. A few years later, he and young catcher named Chris Hoyles, they would develop a prearranged set of signals between them two that they would relay to the pitcher. In 1990, Junior finishes with a 996 fielding percentage, the highest ever in the history of the game. He made a total of three errors and 680 chances. Three, folks. Like in Blind Mice and Musketeers, he went 428 straight chances before committing an error. And for some reason, which still escapes me, they gave the shortstop gold glove in the AL to Ozzie Guillen, who had 17 errors that season. Again, three. And Cal's not some little middle infielder who needs to take 50 little steps to get to the ball and make a ranging throw. He could certainly do that, but he didn't need to do that with his high baseball IQ because he was always there when the ball was hit. Cal won two gold gloves in his career, but he really should have won five. And I put that on my mama. In 1991, Ripton comes out the gate smoking white hot. As July approaches... The fans elect Cal to his ninth consecutive All-Star game. He accepts an invitation to the Home Run Derby at Sky Dome in Toronto, and he blasted a, a then-record 12 home runs. Uh, again, that was a record in that format, and he became the first shortstop to ever win the Derby. The following day, he drops Dong 
on former teammate Dennis Martinez for a three-run homer in the third, propelling the AL to a 4-2 victory in the Midsummer Classic and becoming the first player to win the Derby and the All-Star MVP award in the same year. Ripken finishes with uh, 46 doubles, 34 home runs, 114 RBI, and a 323 average, earning him his second AL MVP award. And he would also finish with a 986 fielding percentage to finally win his first gold glove. And while Toronto was excited and presenting Skydome to baseball, a couple years before, and the White Sox with their run-of-the-mill, been-there-done-that, Comiskey Park 2.0. The Orioles were now moving into the house that Cal built. Orioles Park at Camden Yards. It was a blast-back retro crib like Evans Field, but with all the up-to-date modern amenities. And she would be the standard-bearer for pretty much... Every stadium built after her. Without Camden, the stadiums would still be stuck in that god-awful cookie-cutter horseshit of the 70s or the same old ho-hum buildings like Comiskey. Cal struggled that first year in Camden as he had taken a beating and contract negotiations with the team as well as on the field. He was hit by a pitch in the elbow in April. In July, was hit in the back from an errant throw. And although he suffered through a dismal hitting season, his defensive excellence was rewarded with his second goal glove. And even though Cal was resilient enough to play during the 1985 season with a twisted ankle, as well as 92 with this myriad of nicks and bruises, 1993 presented the most serious challenge to the consecutive game streak. On June 6th, a game, <laughs> I actually attended this one, by the way, uh, Orioles pitcher Mike Mussina drills Mariner uh, Bill Hasselman after Seattle pitcher Chris Basio threw behind a couple of Orioles earlier in the game. After Hasselman gets plunked, one of the wildest, most chaotic fights in Oriole history broke loose. Hasselman charges the bump, and Messina, to his credit, bravely began wrestling the mayor, uh, Hasselman, who was, he was much bigger than Moose. Eventually, Hasselman bear hugs Moose, and he wrestles him down. And Cal, from a shortstop position, is like, oh shit, that's our ace. And as he gets to the mound to try and get Mike out from the bottom of the pile... He hears his knee pop as a mob of Mariners charge and tackle him. And by the time the fight is over, they got to use a spatula to scrape Messina off the mound. Catcher Jeff Tackett, he's a bloody mess from trying to defend his ace. And Alan Mills is, well, Alan Mills is punching everyone in the face who's in a three-foot radius around him. Truly, Adam Mills is the toughest, baddest fighter the Orioles ever had. I mean, just go ask Dale Strawberry, another victim of his vicious jab power a couple years later in New York City. So, Cal didn't think much of, a, much of it with the adrenaline rush of the fight. But, the next inning he was only on deck circle and he, he said he noticed pain, but he went on and he played. Well, the next day was a whole other story. When Cal tried to get out of bed, he couldn't even stand. And 
His wife asked him, well, what about the streak? And honestly, the streak was the last thing he was thinking about, and he was a little annoyed by the question. So he calls his parents, and they're asking him about the streak. And he's like, and he told them, I don't think I can walk, let alone play tonight. And Cal always smiles when he tells this story because he notes that his parents live 45 minutes away from him, but he remembers hanging up the phone with Senior, and exactly 45 minutes later, Cal and Vi were at the door to check on their son. However, Ripken had like this body thing that earned him the nickname Karate Man by teammate Ben McDonald. The former LSU first pick would always say, Cal never bruises and he doesn't have tendons in his body. He's Karate Man. Ripken, after speaking to his wife and parents, decides he's going to go in early. Trainer Richie Bansells was there and took him through some vigorous physical therapy. And after a while, that same leg that he couldn't stand on, it began to feel better. And of course, Cal was able to play and led his team to victory that night. For the next few years, Cal continued to be a mythological presence in the lineup and at the shortstop position. Uh, never missing a game, playing as usual, consist- consistent D in the field, and you know that's even when the bat may slump. On August 12, 1994, baseball went on strike in the midst of arguably the most contentious moment between owners and players in American sport history. The main arguments were over what else? Money. The owners wanted a salary cap, abolish arbitration, revenue sharing, and, you know, they want to change the free agency rules. And by now, we all know the players tell the owners to go fuck themselves, which led to the cancellation of the playoffs in the World Series, marking the first time a professional sport in America lost an entire postseason due to a labor disagreement. Over the offseason, the situation really did not improve as... Owners were now threatening to use stab replacement players in the upcoming 95 season. And if the players didn't return to work, the owners were threatening them with this. Now, as some of you may know, I have like this real visceral loathing of former Orioles owner Peter Angelos. But I will say this. In the beginning of the Angelos era... He was a great young man. He he was willing to spend money to compete, and he also stood up and he told Major League Baseball that not only would the Orioles not be using scabs, but they would outright forfeit every game on their schedule for Baltimore. Because Angelos actually had the foresight to recognize the importance of Cal Ripken's streak for not only Baltimore and the Orioles, but all of Major League Baseball. Getting these fans back. Because of Angelos, the owners scrap that scab idea and they get back to negotiations. Ripken had been given permission by the union to cross the line. But Cal wasn't ever going to do that. And this is what brought people back. They could relate to the guy who does his job. And that's why the street Got everybody caught up in what it was. Thankfully, it all eventually worked out with the help of Judge Sotomayor. 
The season started in late April, and it was soon apparent he would break Lou Gehrig's record on September 6th at Camden Yards. If the Orioles missed one game, just one game due to rain, it could mess everything up as Baltimore would be on the road for a stretch after the 6th. As Ripken is getting closer to the 6th of September, the Orioles began to hang a banner from the warehouse in right field, denoting how many games had been played up to this point. And every day, like Cal, it was the same consistent spectacle. In the middle of the fifth, the rule will be posted on the scoreboard about how it's an official game when the opposing team has made 15 outs and the home team is leading, or if the home team has made 15 outs regardless of who is winning. It is now considered an official game. And with the music from the, nat- the, the movie The Natural playing on the loudspeaker, another number would drop on the banner, and the stadium would go nuts. And I probably went to about nine or ten of these games, and the build was intense. I can't even put it in words. Every game, the Orioles faithful would go crazy. Cheers and tears, my friends. Cheers and tears. On September 5th, 1995, Calatai Lou Gehrig's once improbable number of 2,130 consecutive innings versus the California Angels. And when the batter unfurled to 21-30, Junior received a four-minute standing ovation. After retiring the side, the Orioles came to bat, and Bobby Bonilla let out the inning with a dong. As Cal strides to the plate, after having officially tied the record the half inning before, he turns, gives his little brother a pound, who is sitting behind home plate, and the Camden Yards crowd is going bananas. So, he quickly gets ahead, 3-0 on the count, and you can literally cut the tension with a knife, as everyone in the crib is expecting Cal to be given the green light in this cripple count of 3L. You see Cal step out of the box, whispering to himself that he gets in the box. What did he say, you wonder? Well, Cal was a great 3-0 hitter early in his career. Somewhere lost along the line, he lost confidence in his ability to drive 3-0 pitches. And he rarely swung on a 3-0 count. So Cal, when he steps out of the box, he says to himself, it's not 3-0. It's really 2-0. So be ready. And sure enough, he gets that center cut cookie fastball coming to the plate. And Cal, <laughs> well, he met the moment in game 2130. Cal sends one high in the air to the left center field.
Can you believe it? Can you dig it? A warlike swing on his night. Oh, baby. No need to file a grievance on the location of that pitch baseball. As soon as he hit it, you knew it was gone. And after the game, former Twins pitcher Jim Gott told a story to the crowd about how in 1982 he entered the league as a rookie. And he, he was awarded the game ball by the Twins on May 12, 1982 versus the Orioles. Now, 14 seasons later, the pitcher was giving his ball game ball that he earned that night to Calverton Jr., whose record-breaking streak started in the same game on the same night that he won his first game. The next night was even more off the chain. And it was emotional as, I ain't gonna lie, I'm living proof that snakes cry, baby. With President Bill Clinton and Vice President Gore in the house and in front of all his family and baseball ambassadors like Joe DiMaggio and Frank Robinson in attendance, Cal proved to all his detractors once and for all that showing up to do your job was actually a good thing. For the last couple of years of the strike, some fans and writers gave him grief over the strike, claiming he was hurting the team by playing every day. Cal never looked at it that way, though. He just showed up at the ballpark, and if his name was in the lineup, which it always was, he played. Truth is, I saw a lot of bad Orioles baseball after their uh, run from the mid-60s to late early 80s, and Cal was always the best option at shortstop, day in and day out, no matter what he was hitting. In the mid-90s, he was always precariously under this microscope. But the truth is, if you had gone to, say, a Sutcliffe, an Erickson, McDonald, Mucina, and said, Cal is sitting during your start today, and he's not hurt, there would have been serious objections to that. In the pitcher's mind, uh, in those guys' mind, Cal could play in their starts until he couldn't. So there's no other person you want fielding a ground ball with a time run of third late in the game. And all these things were running through his mind until it was time to hit in the fourth inning. And this freaking guy always steps up in the big moment. Can he do it again? Ball has homered in each of the first two games in the series. They're going off Jim Abbott two nights ago. Mark Holzner last night. He clobbers it to deep left field. And you can hear the crowd. It's Bedlam in Baltimore. As the city's favorite son did them proud. And when the batter dropped on that one, and after it was official, the intensity was taken to yet another level. Fireworks, constant curtain calls, literally shut the game down. And an embarrassed cow, he tried to be like his father and live above the fray. He kept saying, okay, let, let's get the game back. But... No dice, Jim Rice. No one was having it. After a while, Bobby Bonilla and Raphael Palmer, they're like, dude, what are you going to do? And Cal's like, I don't know, but let's play. And Bonilla says, 
you know, that's not happening, Cal. You're, you're bigger than baseball in this moment. And that's when Raphael says, Rip, you're going to have to do a victory lap around the yard. And Bonilla says, yeah, a victory lap. And they both grab Junior, push him out of the dugouts, and into the arms of first base coach Al Bummery, who then hugs and shakes his hands and motions him down the first base line. And what proceeded next was the ultimate unscripted baseball celebration. As he is walking that first base line, he begins to see Oriole fans with tears in their eyes, thanking him for saving baseball after the consent. Oh, my God. <laughs> I swore to myself I was not going to cry while I'm doing this. Let me get my shit together here, okay? So he's walking down the first base line, and he's starting to see all these fans who have tears in their eyes when they're looking back at him. You know, uh, he sees old men losing their hair that had full heads of cabbage back in Memorial Stadium back when Cal noticed them then. Uh, both the fans and Cal were growing old together. And he began shaking hands and really looking into their eyes. And in fact, some fan in right center field, he fell out of stands trying to reach him. And you can see kind of like the fear in Cal's eyes as he's making sure the dude's okay. He was fine, but, you know, he kind of swept up the adrenaline rush. Probably felt it the next day like Cal did in the plate versus Seattle. And uh, like Cal, that dude probably went on to, uh, you know, just go to work the next day. No worse for wear. The state-of-the-art sound system, it starts playing One Moment in Time by Whitney Houston. And honestly, hard, grizzled, blue-collar Baltimore men were literally crying in their natty bows. Nothing about the celebratory victory lap was scripted, and it was perfect. The celebration lasted 22 minutes. Over 50.1 million households turned in to watch Cal break Derrick's record. So, I, I need feel like I need to tell you, Cal Ripken is so much more than a streak. Because of the streak, we sometimes lose context of how really special he was. But fairly enough, that, that is his baseball legacy. Even, you know, nationally. Even though in Baltimore, we know different. Watching him every day, and I do mean every fucking game. But since the streak is considered nationally what Cal is known for, let the snake encapsulate what you may have not known about those years that he was chasing the streak. During the streak chase, Cal made 1,433 double plays. During the run at Garrick, 6,413 assists, obviously the most during that stretch. But he only made 209 errors, averaging 16 per season. Not so obviously, the least of all shortstops during that span. 435 doubles, most by any shortstop in that span, 1,229 RBI, 161 game-winning hits. He set nine all-time MLB records, 315 homers, the most by any shortstop ever, the fewest errors in one season by a shortstop, three, the most consecutive chances without committing an error. I told you all about that number, it's like 438, I believe. The best season fielding percentage, a record Dozen straight All-Star Game starts. The most home runs in a derby in that format. Uh, this is, Remember, this is all during the chase. Let's not forget uh, those 8,246 consecutive innings played. During the streak, he won two gold gloves, should have won three. Two AL MVPs, 
Rookie of the Year, All-Star Game MVP, and a World Series ring. Within the time he was chasing the streak, his longest hitting streak was 17. He did that three times. His longest hitless streak was eight games. He only did that once. The Orioles, as a team, their longest winning streak inside of his chase was 11 games, 1987. The longest Orioles losing streak during that chase was, of course, the 21 straight losses to start the 1988 season. The longest streak at shortstop uh, during the chase by a player not named Cal was 347 games by Alfredo Griffin of the Oakland A's. Ripken's first day in the majors, Steve Carlton, Willie Stargell, Johnny Bench, Tom Seaver, Collier Stripsky, Joe Morgan, Raleigh Fingers, Reggie Jackson, Jim Palmer, Fergie Jenkins, Rod Carew were all active players. By the time Cal broke the streak, all of those dudes were in the hall. When the streak began, the average player made $240,000 a year. By the 6th of September, 1995, it was $1.075 million. By the time Cal broke the streak, there were only 41 guys in Major League Baseball actively left from the first day of the streak. When Cal broke the streak, Wade Boggs, Don Mattingly, Tony Gwynn, Kirby Puckett had a combined... 9,280 hits. When the streak started in May of 1982, they had a combined total of six. All by balls. Box. During the streak, other teams had used 522 shortstops. Ripken had six managers during the chase. Earl Weaver, Joe Altabelli, his father, Frank Robinson, Johnny Oates, and Phil Regan, is usually the forgotten one, and ironically, he was the manager the season Cal broke the record. During the streak, the Orioles used 33 different first basements, 42 third basements, including Cal, 31 second basements, including his brother Billy, who started 635 games alongside Junior and turned 287 double plays, which is record for a brotherly duo. The manager substituted for him defensively 53 times with nine different players. They pinched run for him three times. They pinched hit for him 13 times. During the chase, Cal averaged 8.9 innings played. Pretty much nine innings. He faced, by my research, 775 different pitchers. Played in 19 different stadiums, five of them which were younger than the street. He played in front of 58.1 million fans in stadiums across the nation. He traveled some 7,475,000 feet in and around the diamond during the chase. That includes 563 miles offensively, 853 miles defensively, and 470,000 miles miles by air, park to park. And I think I'm going to end it there. I don't like to lose my audience, and anything over an hour, I get a little nervous. I do have the history of the Baltimore Orioles coming in the next few months, so I can just pick up there and finish it out. Uh, Cal would go on to ultimately uh, play another 500 more Almost 500 more consecutive games, finishing at 2,632. Unfortunately, a bad back. It would eventually bring Cal back to mortality, and he would retire in 2001. In 2007, Rimkin would get the third highest total of votes in Hall of Fame history, as him and Tony Gwynn would be inducted in probably my favorite Hall of Fame class of all time. Uh, 
On June 9th of that year, the largest induction crowd ever, 82,000 fans, uh, stormed Cooperstown to celebrate the inclusion of two hometown kids who played their whole career for their hometown teams. Two true ambassadors of the game of baseball. And like Cal once said after breaking Lou's record, whoever Lou is, I don't think he cares that I played one more game than him. I hope he would see me as a guy who went out and did my job. A guy who hopefully represents everything that is good and right about the beautiful game of baseball. And like I said, I'm going to end it here. I don't believe in doing two-part shows. I don't feel like the majority of listeners like them too much. I know I'm not the kind of listener who likes to wait and wait wait a week for a part two. Me personally, I'd rather hear a whole new topic. So... Luckily for me, there is always an opportunity to finish these stories for new topics. And I'll be doing the history of the Orioles in a couple months. And I will finish the last third of Cal's career while we do that. We'll dig into his last All-Star game where A-Rod and Yankees manager Joe Torre moved Cal from third base to shortstop. And a show of class and respect to the old feller. And then Ripken would drop dong on Chan Ho Park's lips to win uh, the uh, Midsummer Classic MVP for the second time. Uh, so, believe it or not, there's a method to my madness. When I do these stories, I will give you the last third of Cal's career on the history of the Oreos on which uh, I'll be bringing you live uh, down the ocean. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's topic and presentation. There are so many books and videos of Cal to enjoy. There is an ESPN Sports Center documentary to watch. Also, a good documentary I found on YouTube. YouTube, I highly recommend it. It's called uh, Iron, and it's really, really good. So if you're interested in learning more, there's plenty out there. But before I bounce, let's take a look at these final stats from Calvin Jr. 21-year career, all with the Baltimore Orioles. 95.9 war. 3,001 games, 11,551 at bats, 1,647 runs scored, 3,184 hits, 603 doubles, 44 triples, 431 home runs. His 351 home runs as a shortstop are the most by any shortstop in the history of baseball. 1,695 RBI and a 276, 340, 447 slash, a 786 OPS. And a 112 OPS Plus. 19-time All-Star, 2-time AL MVP, 2 All-Star MVPs, 3 Gold Gloves, should have been 5, 2,632 consecutive game plays. Cal Sr., Vi Ripken, job well done. Please remember to subscribe, follow, and share these good links for your good brother. You can find me on Twitter at jrobbie1 or the show's page at back underscore k underscore podcast. You can find my archives of shows at my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, or on Facebook or YouTube pages, which are the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. This week's story is dedicated to my big bro that I never got to meet, Lance Geary. I hear you're the biggest Ripken fan on the planet, and this one's for you, bro. So, another baseball story in the books, and I'm going to my attention to next week's show, where we will talk about the amazing journey to the United States for the Hernandez brothers, LaVon and El Duque. But hey, that's another story for another pod, here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers, 
and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in their phone, looking bored AF, by all means, take him or outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.